you uh, missed my earlier disclaimer about the Advent themes and you were expecting us to be talking about uh, peace this morning, the uh, uh, exact theme for each uh, week of Advent isn't something that is really carved in stone. The, the idea of uh, Advent as a season is uh, goes back for, for centuries, but the idea of four candles on a wreath and each candle represents something different actually doesn't go back that far, and so we just haven't agreed on it. And So it's going to be love this week. If that disappoints anybody that we're going to talk about God's love instead of peace, um, there's not much I can do for you anyway. So uh, as it happens, we're going to talk about God's love this week. And I think that kind of works, actually. Uh, God so loved the world that he sent his son. That's what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. The joy and the peace are gifts God has given to us in his love. His love is where it starts. So there is a certain logic in thinking about love uh, before the others. So today's theme is love. What is love? When I ask that question, how many of you automatically hear the words, baby, don't hurt me in your heads? Any, anybody else? It pops up. And, yeah, thank you. Thank you. No, I, I feel more normal now. At least somebody raised their hand. But, you know, there seems to be general agreement among humans that love is a good thing. Uh, apparently, love is all you need. Uh, many folks would do anything for love. Uh, there is a high priority uh, that we place on something that we do wrestle to define, as one troubadour put it. He wants to know what love is and requests that the listener would please show him. Uh, there is some evidence that those who have a clear definition of love tend to be pessimistic about love's value. One noted thinker uh, defines love as a second-hand emotion and thus dismisses it as a sweet, old-fashioned notion and questions what love has to do with it. And this is just a survey uh, based on pop music. If we shift genres, you know, we could talk about, uh, for example, the world of opera, uh, which teaches us almost unanimously that falling in love is a strong indicator you're going to die a tragic and untimely death. If for some reason uh, we wanted to consult uh, the contemporary Christian music from the 1990s, uh, we could consider DC Talk's assertion that love is a verb. It's difficult to take them seriously when their treatise on love begins with the words, I quote, boom, burn, bip, yeah, pow, hey. But you might be wondering whether I have any room to question anyone's uh, seriousness in their introductions at this point. But their point, which is by no means original to them, of course, is that love is no mere emotion but requires action, even, even simply is action. Uh, what actions qualify as love? I, I suppose if you polled people on the street, you might get any, any number of answers, uh, what their love language might be. Uh, my love language is personal space, by the way, and also, <laughs> also cookies um, are good. But I'm, I'm making some pathetic attempts at humor here, I know. But it's not all fun and games because it's true that virtually all humans would say they value love. And yet, if we survey human history or current events, it seems pretty clear that human beings are generally bad at loving one another. Even people who get married to each other wrestle with loving one another. Newlyweds might think that since they love each other, the marriage will, will be a breeze. They have all they need. 
Uh, They soon find out that sometimes love just ain't enough. You also need a treaty to define acceptable procedures for loading the dishwasher. Hard-won treaty over many years. But by lighting an Advent candle as a reminder of love, we make an assertion that genuine love is not something that is in the first place achieved by us as human beings. Genuine love is something that had to enter into our world as a gift with the coming of Christ. God is love, says 1 John, and John was not inviting us to take our preconceived ideas about love and map them onto the nature of God. John admonishes us to look to the revelation of God in Christ Jesus in order to know what love is so that we might put that love into practice, having received that love in the first place. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So to know what love is, we look to the gift of God's own Son coming into the world, ultimately to go to the cross. So that's our goal today as we turn to Our scripture for this morning, which is the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah, uh, to know the love of God by contemplating the cross of Christ and its meaning. The servant songs are poems about a righteous servant of God who by his suffering brings salvation of his people. We understand the servant to be Christ himself. The fourth and final song, it actually runs from Isaiah 52, 13, which is what you see there, and through the end of chapter 53, so I I let Sarah off the hook. She didn't have to read all of it. Um, You can thank me later with cookies. The word love might not appear in this song, uh, but the concept of love is absolutely central. This morning we're going to look at the whole of this servant song in four sections. I have a theme word for each section. The the words are enigma, error, explanation, and exaltation. And look at that, they all start with the same letter. I feel like a real preacher when I'm able to alliterate things. That's my um, Baptist training in my background. Enigma, error, explanation, exaltation. To start with the enigma... Uh, This servant song does start with a rather puzzling mystery here. In 52.13, you see, Behold, my servant, this is God speaking, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. High and lifted up, by the way, are the exact words that Isaiah used to describe God in his famous vision from chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. So the one where the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. So the servant is exalted in terms that describe how God is exalted. He's exalted in the way that only God may be exalted. But then in the very next verse, the same servant, his appearance is so marred beyond human semblance. What does that mean? It means that he's become so badly mauled that he's no longer even recognizable as human. The servant is both exalted as God and beaten down until he is seen as less than human, equal to God, less than human. How can we reconcile that? That is the 
enigma. And of course, verse 15 adds some layers to this. Somehow this exalted and humiliated servant sprinkles many nations. In other words, performs this priestly function toward many nations, Gentile nations even, apparently making some priestly service of, of cleansing them before God. The kings of these nations will shut their mouths because of him. They are apparently quite literally dumbfounded by him. But then Isaiah holds out this hope that somehow the Gentile kings are going to come to understand this message that they have not heard. They haven't received this prophecy, but they're going to receive it. And by contrast, in 53 verse 1, those who have heard it don't believe it. The questions here are rhetorical. Who has believed what he has heard from us? This, this prophecy, apparently no one. And then to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? A couple interesting concepts in there that are important to note. One is the arm of the Lord. Um, it's crucial to note that the arm of the Lord in Scripture is never a mere tool that God uses or even a person or servant through whom the Lord works. Not even Moses was himself called the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord has always referred to nothing less than the presence of God himself. When God comes down to work, to work his wonders for salvation, for judgment, this is the arm of God. So who could possibly look at this suffering servant, bruised and broken beyond all recognition as human, and see in him the presence of Almighty God himself. To look into the face of a humble and homeless carpenter's son, pierced by thorns, streaked with blood, and see the face of God, the arm of the Lord, the presence of God in the person of Christ. Think back to the closing chapter of Luke. We saw this just a mere few weeks ago. Where even Jesus' own disciples were perplexed by the cross. Jesus had, had preached to them, preached to them from Isaiah, from the prophets. He told them before on multiple occasions that what the prophets said would happen is that the Christ would suffer before entering into glory. They heard this message. And yet... They saw him, the risen Christ, standing right in front of them, and they still didn't get it until he opened their eyes to see it. It's a riddle we can't solve on our own steam. I pointed out that we're not particularly good at love, but it's not just that we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves, not even that we, we fail to love God with our whole heart and mind and strength. We also fail to even understand, to receive the love of God for us. We cannot arrive at an understanding of God's love by reason and observation alone. It must be revealed to us. It is a gift. And so we see, moving into our next section here, the error, uh, beginning in verse 2. We're looking at verses 2 and 3 here. There are two kinds of errors that we make. They are related the first error here is to see him as completely insignificant. In verse 2, Isaiah says, we assumed he's 
insignificant, as I said. He, he grows up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. In other words, this meager sapling springing up out of humble circumstances, the dry ground are humble circumstances, entirely earthly and not the best patch of earth to begin with. Like they said of him, can, any, can anything good come from Nazareth? His origin marks him in our eyes as entirely ordinary, as does his personal appearance. Again, he's like this sapling, far from the tallest, mightiest tree in the forest. Maybe you could chop him down with a herring, put these little references in there for those who understand them. Um, that's all I'll say about that. But he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. So that the high and lifted up divine status from the start of this song just is not recognized at all. He's just some guy in people's eyes, a total rando, nothing special. Maybe we encounter the same attitude about Jesus today. You know, why should we care about this rabbi who's long dead from a long time ago? What are his qualifications? Why should I care what he thought? How can this have any relevance today? The second error moves beyond this to see him not merely as insignificant, but as repulsive, really. Moves beyond apathy to disgust. He was despised and rejected, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, we esteemed him not. The idea of esteeming, it's, it's kind of like an, well, it's an accounting sort of term. It means to, to count or reckon the value of something. So we just don't think he has any value at all. He is one from whom men hide their faces. If you think about crucifixion, it was a public spectacle, but one aimed to disgust those who saw it, to turn human beings into unsightly monstrosities, the sort of spectacle maybe you find yourself glued to and un unable to look away from, but maybe you would really desire even then to hide your face from. It's a gut reaction of disgust. In short, it's an attempt to blot out the image of God in someone, to erase the core value of a human being, to make them seen as less than even human. We esteemed him not. We did not value him at all. Isaiah says we were so disgusted by him that not only we failed to see his high and lifted up value, but we failed to see any value in him at all. He has the opposite of value. He's to be rejected and thrown away. So not only does he have no more value than anyone you might bump into on the street, he's seen as having less than anyone else. Once again, we could talk about how this attitude might continue today. There are those who see Jesus and his teaching not merely as irrelevant, but even re repugnant, not just out of date or out of touch, but perhaps embarrassing or even harmful. But do you and I really believe that turn the other cheek and love your enemies are good ways to live? I think we too at times can find ourselves balking at the idea of a suffering Savior, especially in those times when he calls us to suffer for his sake. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
we don't aspire to live the way that John calls us there in that verse, to love the way Christ loved us, can we really say that the love of God abides in us? These are the fundamental errors that we make looking at the person of Christ. Isaiah moves on to give us some explanation of what is this about? Why is he stricken in this way? And he corrects our error by explaining what the suffering of Christ is all about. He does this in two basic parts. First, looking at verses 4 through 6, Isaiah states quite plainly that the miserable suffering of Christ, the, dehuman, the dehumanizing agony that he endured, he endured for us. And that means not not merely for our benefit, but in our place, instead of us, as our substitute. Verse 5, I think is a clear statement of what we call substitutionary atonement, that Christ is our substitute. He was pierced for our transgressions. And by the way, the word pierced refers normally to a fatal wound. He was pierced to death for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It's because of our sin that Christ died. And that death is no accident. This is God in this verse that is laying upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And a chastisement is a punishment. Therefore, this is not only a substitutionary atonement, but what we call penal substitutionary atonement, meaning it has to do with punishment. Christ took the punishment that we had coming. So this is really the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of God's gift of love. He sent Jesus, his own son, to die in our place. And the way Isaiah reveals this is just shocking because he paints this hideous figure of the broken and bloodied Christ, barely recognizable as human, which seems to embarrass and disgust us. And then he says, this is a picture of our own guilt. The very griefs and sorrows that would make us want to hide our faces from him are the griefs and sorrows that rightly belonged to us. I do want to call your attention, um, maybe this is a side note, to the fact that Isaiah speaks of both transgressions and iniquities on the one hand in verse 5, and then in verse 4, griefs and sorrows on the other. Again, Christ taking on our punishment is the heart of, heart of the gospel, but that doesn't mean it's the whole story. You know, we, we could apply the gospel to our suffering by saying, well, at least your suffering is not hell, right? Uh, Jesus died for your sins, so the ultimate suffering is off the table for you, and whatever life brings then, you know, it's, it's, it's better than you deserve. And if the idea is to find joy in our justification despite life's circumstances, I think that's great. But I also think there's a richer and fuller picture of who Christ is for us as our Savior, that he took our sins and our sorrows. We are sinners and sufferers, and the work of Christ speaks to us as both sinners and sufferers. That doesn't mean that Jesus' death automatically puts an end to all of our suffering in this life any more than Christ's death automatically puts an end to all of our sinning in this life, right? But we can know that we have a Savior who himself knows what it is to suffer and to grieve. 
Uh, when we come to him with our sorrows, he knows all of them. And just as we look to the cross and know that we will ultimately outlive sin, we can also look to the cross and know that we will ultimately outlive our pain, our grief, that every trace of sin will be wiped away and so will every tear. So the substitution is complete. Everything that mars our lives, he has taken on himself. And he did this, verse 9 says, well actually I want to go back to verse, yeah, I've got the wrong verse here. Maybe I, maybe I was typing upside down. Oh, I see what it is. It is verse 6, but on my slides here, it says it's slide number 9. That's why I'm confused. Verse 6, all right, I can figure things out. Uh, while we were straying, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us have strayed. Notice that you cannot blame this on mere herd instinct. It's not that you were just following the herd in straying. It's we've all turned to our own way. We are each responsible for, before God for our own iniquity and our own straying. And Isaiah says God has dealt with the iniquity of his people by laying it on Christ Jesus. And long story short, I understand Isaiah to mean that God did this for us while we were straying. By this the love of God was manifested among us, Paul said, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this is one leg of the explanation of the enigma of the suffering servant, how he can suffer, why he is suffering. He's suffering for us. A second point Isaiah makes by way of explanation is that Christ did this willingly. Verse 7 speaks of his silence in the face of death, like a lamb led to the slaughter. A lamb or a sheep will go wherever it's led, theoretically, without too much fuss, because it doesn't know what's coming. It might be that it's getting sheared. It might be that it's getting slaughtered. It doesn't know when it's getting slaughtered, what's going to happen, and so it puts up no fight, no objection. Christ knew that the slaughter was coming and still put up no fight. The cross is not what happened to him. The cross is what he did for us. One of the earlier servant songs in Isaiah makes the same basic point in chapter 50, verse 6. This is the servant himself speaking, says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The servant says, I gave, I gave my back to those who strike. No one took his life. He gave it willingly. And this is his life he gave. As verse 8 says, he was cut off from the land of the living. This is his entire life. It's not just a beating, but he lays down his life. Notice again in verse 8 the confusion that surrounded these events. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? It's a willing act of self-sacrifice in the place of his people, and they just were not able to wrap their minds around it. 
And we, even those who put their trust in it, wrestle to wrap our minds around it still. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. So this song of Isaiah is about the love of Christ for his people. This love looks like an atrocity, frankly. The righteous servant of God, his appearance marred beyond all human semblance, willingly pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by those hideous wounds we might be healed. That's not the end of the story. There is still more, and we turn to the final section here to see the exaltation. We're looking at verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 in the ESV says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Hebrew word there for will normally means to delight in, take pleasure in. And you can see why it's translated here as will, right? Surely Isaiah does not mean that God took some perverse pleasure in the suffering of his son for its own sake or in and of itself. This would open us up to that charge that the cross is simply cosmic child abuse or something like that. But still we miss something if we take God's delight out of the picture entirely. The point is not just that this was God's plan all along, although it clearly was. The point is that this is something that God wanted to, was pleased to do in redeeming us. Not the suffering of the cross for its own sake, but to display his glory in this great act of our redemption. Though it cost the unimaginable degradation of God the Son, the Father did not pay that price grudgingly. He paid the price willingly, just as Christ himself paid the price willingly. I imagine us someday, years from now, or maybe moments from now, around a great banquet table of the marriage supper of the Lamb, meeting this same Christ who willingly gave his life to redeem us. I imagine many of us, if not all of us, overwhelmed in that moment in our then sinless gratitude, crying out, thank you, Father, for sending your Son to bring us here to this table. And in that moment, I imagine our great host replying, I was delighted to do it. I am delighted to bring you here. You and me, wretched, ignorant sinners that we still are today, riddled with unbelief, plagued by sins, idolatry still clinging to us, like that little static-filled piece of cellophane from my granola bag this morning that I just couldn't shake off and get it into the garbage can. Just when you think you're doing okay, you find that like a stupid sheep, you've wandered off and gotten yourself stuck in the ditch again. This is you and me, and God is delighted to redeem us, terrible though the cost was, while we were still straying, and though we still stray. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God. In the words of John Stott, 
God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. And there's still more to the story, though. Because God's love for us still doesn't fully resolve the enigma. How is the servant both high and lifted up and humbled to the dust? In the final section here, we see not primarily the exaltation of ourselves, but the exaltation of the servant. Verse 10, it's interesting. It says, he shall prolong his days. That's an odd thing for Isaiah to say about someone who he just said is going to die horribly. It can only mean that death is the end of his story, that he lives again. But Isaiah doesn't quite focus on that fact as directly as maybe we would would like him to. He almost glosses over it and returns to the suffering and death and ends on that note. Out of the anguish of his soul, he says, he shall see and be satisfied. So the point, as I understand it, is not, well, yeah, he was dead, but then he got better, so all's well that ends well. The point seems to be, rather, that even in his agony and his death, his glory is revealed. There's an exaltation even connected with the cross itself. Somehow the suffering of the servant works not only for our good, but for his own glory. Consider verse 12. By the way, I think uh, this should be translated the way the Christian Standard Bible and other, ver- other versions translate it. I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil. It's a bit anticlimactic, anticlimactic if he just gets a cut of what other strong and mighty people are getting. I think this is along the lines of Revelation 5, that the lamb is worthy because he was slain and by his blood ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The people he redeemed are, in a sense, his, his reward, the spoils he brings back from the battle. And also something to note in verse 12, uh, the word because there. It says why he's receiving this reward. It's because... And that word because, it's two words in Hebrew. It's sort of the strongest form of because. It's strange to think of uh, language having different kind of words for because. But the idea is that it's precisely because of the fact that he poured out his soul to death. Precisely because he died in this humiliating and agonizing way that he is given these spoils. That he is exalted in this way. It is the necessary and logical and only possible fruit of such a great act of love and sacrifice that he should be so exalted. In a surprising way, we don't just see how deep the Father's love for us is. We actually see the depths of the Father's love for his Son. As Paul said to the Philippians, Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1, he shows us in that verse that we've made our theme verse for our church, that Christ is preeminent that he has first place in everything and it's precisely because all the fullness of God dwells in him and 
In him all things in heaven and on earth are reconciled to God since he has made peace by the blood of his cross. His preeminence is won by the blood of his cross. This preeminence of Christ over all creation and in the end over a redeemed creation is achieved by his great work of redemption on the cross. So God sent his son whom he appointed heir of all things, heir as their creator, sustainer, and redeemer. So what can we say about the gift of love that God sent in the manger in Bethlehem? As Christ prepared to endure the cross, he himself prayed that his followers might see the glory that the Father gave him because the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. And he spoke of his mission as making the Father known to us, so that the love which the Father loved the Son, love with which the Father loved the Son, might be in us. So the gift of love that we remember today, of Christmas, it brings us into this profound mystery of the love of God for God, the love of the Father for the Son within the depths of the Holy Trinity from all eternity. The gift of love is for us, but it is not in the first place about us. It is about the glory of God, glory to God in the highest as the angels sang. And this does not devalue God's love for us. It it, elevates it because it's not just about us it's about the glory of God so we can rest secure knowing that God's love for us is as secure as the father's eternal unchanging love for his son this is the gift of love that we celebrate on Christmas let's pray Father, we give you thanks and give you praise that you have loved us in this way with this everlasting love that you so loved the world that you gave your only son. This the cross, the gift of your son, the coming of Christ, his suffering, it presents us with this enigma that I'm not sure we've really resolved even, that you would love sinners like us, failing all the time to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love you as you deserve doubting your love for us, turning to other loves, other gods, would-be gods, turning to find our value, our worth, our security, our purpose, and anything, anything but you. And yet you are unwavering in your purposes and your purpose to redeem a people for yourself by the blood of your Son. 
for our good, showing your love for us and for your glory. We just don't understand. We can't wrap our minds around this. We can only, we can only say thank you, Father, for your great love for us. Help us to rest secure, knowing your love for us is secure. That you did not send your own son to suffer and die, to be marred beyond recognition for us in order to then just leave us to our own devices. But we are safely in your hands, safely in your love. Help us to rest in that love by faith in your Son. And as we do so, may you transform us so that we might love one another as we ought. And in this way, the love of Christ, the love of God might be in us and might be visible in us, that others might come as well to rest and trust in this same great act of love on the cross. It's in the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray.